you have your Bibles with you, turn once again to Romans chapter 6. Seems that we've been in this chapter for forever. (laughs) Been in here quite a while, but just so much good stuff in here. It's hard to just go through it fast. I mean, if you could, you know, represent the Bible with a mountain range, Romans chapter 6 would definitely be one of the peaks in that range. Um, we're actually going to finish chapter 6 this morning, and uh, although we'll eventually look at the whole thing, we're right now we're just going to read um, just a few verses here. So picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start with verse 12. So if you would stand with me as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Romans 6, starting at verse 12, Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, we just sang how, God, when we are in your presence, And we get a revelation of you, who you truly are, God, how it changes us. Lord, we can see, uh, God, our own failures, our own sin. But in the middle of that, we also see the remedy for it when we see you and how you change us and you cleanse us, God, and make us whole and make us new. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and through your word, would you give us that supernatural revelation? Lord, your truth is just too much for us to grasp in our own limited um, human minds. God, it is such, so beyond us. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This text that we just read here is one of the passages in the Bible that I consider to be a, a pretty dangerous passage. I call it a a dangerous text because if we aren't careful, the default nature of our flesh can very easily and very naturally take some of this as food for that performance-based part of us that longs for something to boast about. What do I mean by that? Well, there's an incident we're going to look at here that happened with Jesus and his interaction with some people that gives a great illustration of exactly what I'm talking about. It's over in John chapter 6. So if you turn over there for just a minute, and then we'll come back to Romans here in a minute. But in John chapter 6, it's where Jesus has miraculously turned five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed over 5,000 people. And naturally, the people were absolutely amazed by this. So much so that verse 15 says that perceiving that the people were going to then take him by force and make him king, Jesus secluded himself away up into the mountains all alone. And while Jesus was doing that, the disciples get in a boat and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where they run into a storm. And in the middle of the storm, they see Jesus walking on top of the water coming to them. And so he gets in the boat and travels the rest of the way 
with them. And when they get to the other side, this crowd has gathered again. And they realize that Jesus didn't get in the boat with the disciples initially. So for him to be there with them now, he must have done another miraculous thing. And so here they are amazed again. We'll pick up with verse 26. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? This question that the people just asked Jesus here is them responding from this default nature that I was just talking about. They wanted to to know what they had to do in order to do the things that they, they saw Jesus doing. They were all trying to satisfy some basic needs that we are all born with. The need to be significant, the need to be recognized, the need to be liked. And we know that in order to be those things, we have to do something in order to achieve that. In order to be significant, we have to do something significant. In order to be recognized, we have to do something recognizable. And in order to be liked, we have to do something likable. And so whenever we see an opportunity for any of these things to be done, we're going to seize on that opportunity as fast as we can. So these people were asking, what do we have to do? To do, because in their mind, everything hinges on that, what we do, because that's the way things work in the world of broken people. And I just love Jesus' answer to their question. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now, there is an incredible amount of solid biblical doctrine just in that one statement that Jesus makes there. We don't have time to get into all of that today, but his answer couldn't have been further from what the people were expecting. He was essentially saying, you want to be significant, you want to be recognized, you want to be liked, here's how you do that. Believe in me. Now, their response to this is almost comical. Verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They were so obsessed with what one must do, that's all they could see. They couldn't quite grasp what Jesus was saying here. All they were concerned about, all they were focused on is what happens on the outside. And it's no wonder this is what they were obsessed with and all they could see because this is exactly the way they had been living their entire lives in relation to God under the old covenant law. The law was all about what one must do in order to be in good standing with God. Follow all these rules, perform all these rituals, obey and observe all these ordinances, and then you will be significant, recognized, liked by God and by others. The people were focused on outward behavior, but Jesus' answer here clearly shows that he wasn't concerned at all about what they did on the outside. He was concerned with the heart. He was addressing specifically what happens on the inside of us rather than the outside. 
And every one of us today still have this same bent towards seeing everything from an outward perspective, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. We still have this same desire to be significant, to be recognized, to be liked. We still have this old covenant mentality that says, if I will do this, then God will do this in return. The default nature of our flesh constantly looks for ways for us to be able to leverage more of God's blessings in our life. Constantly looks for ways for us to be able to tilt the scales in our favor just a little bit. We still have the tendency to think that everything hinges on what we do. Just like the people in John chapter 6 approach Jesus with what must we do That's exactly the way we tend to approach the Bible. Talked about last week how instead of taking a Jesus-centered approach and looking for him in every text, we usually take a me-centered approach and look for what must I do. And this brings us back to the text we just read in Romans 6. I call this a dangerous text because it is one that we can easily latch on to from that outward perspective. Because at first glance, it does appear to be addressing our outward behavior, especially with lines like, don't present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves as instruments of righteousness to God. And there have been countless sermons on this text where a preacher will take those lines and come up with all these checklists to, to know how to do that. They'll say, these are the ways that we present the members of our body to sin. These are the ways that we can present our bodies to, as instruments of righteousness. And to tell you the truth, our flesh absolutely loves those kinds of sermons. Because if we've taken notes, we've now got our checklist in hand to follow all week. We now know what we need in order to leverage more of God's blessings in our life. We now know what it can take in order to tip the scales in our favor just a little bit. We've got something that we can boast in because if we can follow that checklist, then we can look at that and go, man, look what I've done. I really feel good about myself today. And our flesh absolutely loves it. But we all know what eventually happens to those checklists. They end up in the trash pretty quick. Because real soon we find out just how much of a failure we are at following those lists. And then we beat ourselves up with all kinds of guilt and condemnation for not living up to the expectation that we had of ourselves or the expectation that the preacher put on us in that message. But if we read this text through the lens of the gospel, we see that it really isn't about our outward behavior at all. It is completely about a transformation of the heart, and it is so much more about what happens on the inside than it is about what happens on the outside. Remember, like I always say, when it comes to our relationship with God and our standing with Him and who we are in Him, it is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. And if that's true, then this text can't be about a bunch of checklists. It has to be about Jesus, and it is. And the reason we know that is because of the very first word that we read in verse 12, therefore. I've told you before that whenever you come across a therefore in the Bible, 
don't read what it says after it until you have first read everything that it says before it. If you want to get the most from your Bible reading, here's something that you must realize. Context is everything. Say it with me. Context is everything. Turn to your neighbor. No, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Tell you the truth, that is one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. When a preacher or some speaker goes, turn to your neighbor and say whatever. I can't stand it. Sorry, I'm just... (laughs) So don't, I'll never ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell them anything, okay? You can relax at E.T. <laughs> First point in your Bible, I mean in your notes, when, when reading the Bible, context is everything. Ta- context means the environment around it. What's going on in this passage here? What's being said before it? What's being said after it? If you remove a verse from its context, more than likely you're also going to remove it from its meaning and its intended person purpose. When we do that, then we tend to give it the meaning that we want for it rather than the meaning that God intended for it to have. I'll give you a real simple example of this. There is a verse in Psalm 14 that says there is no God. Now, if I were an atheist, I could take that and I could say, you see here, Even in your own book that you people claim to be written by God, it even says there itself that there is no God. And in a sense, that would be true. Psalm 14.1 does say there is no God, but that's not the context of that. The context is that right before that line, it says, the fool says in his heart. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. The context gives it a whole different meaning. you got to be careful about taking a particular verse or any passage from the Bible without knowing what the context is. And so the context of this passage we just read in Romans 6 is everything that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's about being baptized into Christ and being transformed in a completely new creature We are now identified with everything that God identifies in Jesus. We talked about what it means to be dead to sin and how our sin nature has been completely replaced with God's divine nature. And so taking into account all of that, therefore do not let sin reign in your body. Therefore, since you have been baptized into Christ, since you have died to sin, since you now have a completely, totally new identity, since you have been made righteous, since your identity is alive and your old identity is dead, since all of that has taken place in you through your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, therefore, don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Before you can ever do what it says in verses 12 through 14, verses 1 through 11 has to happen first. You cannot quote Romans 6, 12 through 14 to a lost person and expect them to do it. In fact, you can't even quote it to a Christian and expect them to do it if they don't really know or believe who they are in Christ. 
The only way to not let sin reign in your body is if you know first that you have died to sin. The only way to present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness is if you know what it means to have been baptized into Christ and completely transformed in Him. But here's the deal. Even if you have been done that and changed in that way from God's perspective, it's still going to be very hard for you to be able to live that way if you don't really believe it. Next point in your notes, our actions are a result of what we believe. Jesus knows this, and it is precisely the reason he gave the answer to the people that he did when they were asking, what must we do? He simply told them to believe. He knew that once they believed, their actions would then take care of itself. Their actions would be a natural result of their belief. What we believe changes our heart, and when our heart is changed, our lives follow suit in the way we live our life. The weight of this text in Romans 6 is not on what we do on the outside. The weight of this text is completely about what Jesus has already done on the inside that then affects what we do on the outside. And so if I wanted you, as a church, to quit presenting the members of your body to sin, I'm not going to list all the, the, the things, the ways that that looks like, and then go, so don't do these things. If I want you to present your body as instruments of righteousness, I'm not going to give you a list of of, of steps to follow and goals to be able to check off. I mean, you may be able to do them at least for a little while, but it's not going to be a lasting thing. If this is something that I want you to do for, for a, a, a lasting time, for it to become an actual part of your natural life, then what I need to do is remind you over and over what Jesus has done and who you are in him until it finally sinks in when you truly believe it. Not just in theory, but deep down to the point where it trent or renews your mind which Paul specifically addresses later on in chapter 12. That's why I always say that we've got to be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another every day. Look, if you just rely on me to preach it to you once a week, that's not going to be enough. This is a daily battle that we fight between truth and error. And so we've got to be grounded in, reminded of this truth Daily, every day. And most of us, I mean, we do believe this, at least in theory. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in here today singing about this and amening it when it's preached. But just being in agreement with it in theory will not change your heart. It's believing it deep down to the point where it actually becomes a part of you. Our actions will always line up with our identity and what we believe about ourselves. Several weeks ago, a transsexual person came up here to the church during the week, was looking for some gas money. This person was clearly born a man, no doubt about it. But his actions, the way he talked, the way he dressed, all his mannerisms, was completely like a woman. 
He even stated that he was a woman. And the reason he gave for that was because God doesn't make mistakes. Yeah, go figure that one. I wanted to see if he'd be open to hearing any truth at all. And so after listening to all his ramblings, I finally said, you're absolutely miserable, aren't you? He looked at me kind of shocked, and he said, I'm not miserable. I said, yeah, you are. And then he got all defensive. He said, you're right, I am miserable. I'm miserable because my family doesn't support me, because I'm out of money, because I don't have my medicine, and all these reasons of why he is this miserable victim. And I said, no, truthfully, those things don't have anything to do with your misery. I said, you're miserable because you believed a lie about who you really are. You have bought into everything except for God's best for your life. And he wants to set you free from that misery with his truth. Well, he didn't want to hear any of that. He shut us off and left pretty quick. The point is that all these problems in his life, the root of every one of these problems went back to what he believed about himself. And because his belief was in so much error, he was experiencing all the consequences that come from when we are in error. We live out and experience what we believe. In this verse, Paul says, Don't let sin reign in your body, that you obey its lust, and don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But notice that he doesn't say anything like because that would be really bad for you or so that God will like you or bless you more. No, he's saying don't do this because that's not who you are. That's not who you are. How many of you fans of American Idol? Or at least used to be. I know that's gone way down, right? Well, when you watched it, how many of you were like me and you watched it a whole lot more at the beginning of the season than you did after all the cuts had been made? You know why we do that, right? Because we love to see those people who make a fool of themselves, who have absolutely no talent, no, ability, no, no business being up there singing. But think about this. It is painfully obvious that some of them do not have gift or talent at singing and yet there they are willing to stand in line for hours and stand right there in front of all of America and belt out a noise with all their might why do they do that because they actually believe they're good singers and we think it's funny when they're shocked when they don't get picked you know, American Idol is a good lesson that we should never really encourage someone in a gift that they don't have. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the kind of stuff goes on. Just because somebody wants a gift real bad doesn't mean they're going to get it. And we need to be directing them in the gifts that they actually do have. But I guarantee you the reason some of these people are on American Idol because when they were four years old, they mama, mama told them how good they sang, and it stuck with them. She didn't love them enough to tell them the truth later in life.
My mama loved me enough to tell me, son, you don't got it. <laughs> Here's a, an illustration of what Paul's trying to convey in this message. Let's say the king of a country has made a decree that all prostitutes in the land would not be arrested, charged, persecuted. Nobody was going to go after them for their crimes that they committed anymore. Would they then be motivated to change their lifestyle or their behavior? No. They'd actually probably kick it up a notch because they wouldn't be fearing, looking over their shoulder, that somebody was going to come and arrest them. But let's say that this king actually went out and he chose one and took her as his wife. Now would she be motivated to change her lifestyle? You bet. It doesn't take a genius to know that the life of a queen is quite a bit higher than the life of a prostitute. It wouldn't be the pardon of the crime that necessarily would have caused her change in her lifestyle. It would be the change in her identity that would be the motivation for her change. You know, we spend a lot of time in church talking about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we need to keep talking about it. I'm not saying we should talk about it any less. But the fact that we've been forgiven really isn't what changes our actions and our lifestyle as much as it is the change in our identity. The more we are reminded of what Christ has done and, and who we are in him and what that means, the more we'll start believing it, not just in theory, but really truly believing that's who we are. You know, I've mentioned several times now about how some people are afraid of the truth of grace being preached and taught like it should be because they're afraid people may take it as a license to, to sin and live however they want to. And the truth is, if all we talked about was the forgiveness aspect of grace, then that very well could be an issue. But we saw in verse 2 here in chapter 6 how Paul addresses that and basically says that that can't happen. And the reason then he says that can't happen is because of our identity. He goes straight into what we have been made in Jesus. If we really believe who Christ has made us, then there's no way then that we would look for an excuse to sin more, to look for an excuse to do the exact opposite of who we are. I don't dress like a woman because I believe I'm a man. If I dress like a woman, it would feel extremely uncomfortable for me. And I wouldn't do it for very long. I would repent and put my man clothes back on. I don't look for ways that I can sin more because it doesn't line up with who I believe I am in Christ, that I have been made righteous in Him, that I am a son of the Father who a high price has been paid for. I have a completely new identity in him, and so for me to pursue a sin would not feel natural. It would not feel right. It would feel awkward. Does that mean that I don't sin anymore? No, not at all. But it means that when I do, I'm immediately aware of it, and I know what to do with it. I go straight back to Jesus with it. So that he could clean me up. I don't run away from him and try to clean myself up more so that he will like me 
I know that I already, already have all his favor, and so I go to him with it. Say, here, I don't want this, Jesus. You take it. Now let's look at what Paul does with the rest of chapter 6 here. He takes it right back into our identity. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... See, he's using the analogy of slaves because of our identity here. That though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Did you catch that there? Where does he say the obedience came from? The heart. He said you became obedient from the heart, not from some list of rules that you were trying to follow, but it came from a change that happened inside of you and therefore had an effect on your actions. Read on. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, talking about this slave analogy. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, So now present the members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, which is growing in God, your spiritual growth. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You see what he's saying there? You've got sin and you've got righteousness, two things that are completely opposed to one another. Apart from Christ, we were slaves to sin to the point where we couldn't have anything at all whatsoever to do with righteousness. No matter how hard we tried, but in Christ that changes. We are now completely enslaved to righteousness. And now we have been set completely free to where we don't have to have anything to do anymore with sin. That's a huge thing. If you really believe that, it will change the way you live. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin... You need to hear that. You have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You drive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that is the gospel. Let's pray. I want an incredible thing to know who you have made us, what you have done in us. And Holy Spirit, I'm begging you to come. Give us that belief. God, I can't, I can't convince anybody enough. I can't make anybody believe that only comes by miraculous work of your power, not mine. So I'm asking you, let these truths sink into us, renew our minds, transform our hearts, so that when we live, people will see that you are alive and well in the world, that you're in the business of life change, of redemption, of forgiveness, of love. So Lord, I'm just saying now on behalf of this church body, we 
bare our hearts to you to say, have your way, do the surgery, whatever is needed to make this change happen within us. Lord, we give you our minds and say, renew it. Wash our minds in the the water of your word. It won't be something that we just happy thoughts in theory. This becomes who we are, who we truly believe about ourselves, knowing that it's all about you and what you have done. Oh, Jesus, how much we love you. Holy Spirit, come and do your work now. Glorify the Son. In his name we pray. Amen.